This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, climate scientist Michael Mann wins a defamation lawsuit against right-wing bloggers, and he joins us to talk about it. Plus, mon dieu, why some French cheeses are on the verge of extinction. And we'll check in on the town of East Palestine, Ohio, one year after a toxic train derailment. But first, slightly after 1 a.m. on Thursday, SpaceX successfully launched a commercial spacecraft from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Its destination, the moon. Yo, on board is a lander nicknamed Odie. And if it makes its way safely to the surface, it'll be the first U.S. spacecraft to land on the moon since the Apollo era more than 50 years ago. Here with the details and more science news of the week is Casey Crownhart, climate reporter at the MIT Technology Review based in New York City. Casey, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. Excited to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, so this mission is really a a team effort, isn't it? Absolutely. So like you said, we've got SpaceX. They're the ones that kind of launched the the Falcon rocket that's carrying all this stuff up into space. But they're definitely not the only ones involved. So Intuitive Machines is a company based in Texas. They built the robotic lunar lander that's kind of the center of attention of this mission. Um, And then the mission is also carrying equipment from NASA and also kind of other organizations as well. And what's the main goal here? So the main goal is to get this lunar lander to land gently on the moon. This would be, like you said, the first landing on the moon in a very long time. But it would also be the first private mission to reach the moon and land gently if all goes well. This is not the first time that a company has attempted this sort of mission. So they're trying to land this uh, lander, which is about the size of a phone booth near the South Pole of the moon. This area is really interesting to NASA and a lot of other people because there's ice in that region. We have to explain to some people what a phone booth is. (laughs) (laughs) Are we that old? Oh, no. (laughs) And and the lander, Odie, is on a week-long, like a solo flight, right? Yep. Like you said, it launched early on Thursday. It'll take a little bit to get up to the moon, and then it'll orbit, I think, about a dozen times before it finally goes in and tries to land. And this marks a turning point in lunar space exploration because this is a uh, commercial mission, right? Yeah. So this could really open up a new kind of era of space exploration. You know, we've seen, obviously, kind of national space organizations do a lot of the kind of exploration of, of space and particularly of the moon. But if private companies get involved, it could mean that we see costs come down. It could really change how we start to do exploration, a lot more trial and error, more low-cost missions. And one of many missions coming up, I imagine. I feel like we're hearing about space launches, and every time I come back, I've, I'm bringing news of another one launching off. Yeah, so we had another SpaceX launch more satellites, I think, yesterday. China is looking to launch a lunar sample return mission in May. We've, of course, got the Artemis missions coming up sometime next year. So lots of exciting space news. Wow, that's cool. Speaking of space, scientists are trying to use satellites to measure methane leaks on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. This is really interesting news that we heard this week. Google and the Environmental Defense Fund are launching a satellite to measure methane. Like you said, methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So it's really important to kind of understand where leaks and releases of this gas are coming from. And so this satellite is going to kind of give us a bird's eye view of what's going on on Earth. And what would it be looking at? 
Yeah, so it's mostly kind of focused on oil and gas operations. So that's kind of one of the primary goals of this satellite. It's carrying a bunch of spectrometers, which look at different wavelengths of light that can kind of pinpoint where methane is coming from. But then there's also visual mapping uh, equipment on the satellite as well that'll try to figure out, you know, where are these leaks coming from? What kind of equipment is most likely to kind of leak methane? So it'll be um, a really big step in our understanding of, of methane emissions. And in other climate solutions news, Casey, I know you're on the battery beat again, this time looking into the use of lithium sulfur batteries. What are they? <laughs> Always on the battery beat. I'm, I'm with you on this one. I love the battery beat. Great. So lithium sulfur batteries are a new kind of potential alternative battery chemistry. We use mostly lithium ion batteries today in everything from like laptops and phones to electric vehicles. But researchers are looking for ways to add new options to the table for batteries, including chemistries that could eventually be cheaper um, and also have a higher performance, you know, packing more energy into a smaller space, which could be a, a really big help to extend the range of electric vehicles. So lithium sulfur batteries switch out some of the materials that we use in kind of that standard chemistry uh, for more abundant and available ones. Sulfur, that, that's the reason you'd be using sulfur. It's more abundant, available. Yep. It's cheap. It's very, very cheap. People like to say it's it's not quite a waste product, but it's it's like almost literally as cheap as dirt. So it would be wow. a big boon to to be able to use it in batteries. Yeah. You know, and engineers will tell you because they've told me over the years, there's always a trade-off when you do something like this, right? There's always, always something that maybe, like you said, always a trade-off. For lithium sulfur, that is lifetime. Um, so lithium ion batteries, researchers have been working on those for a long time. So now those can go 800 or even 1,000 cycles, meaning you can use it and recharge it up to 1,000 times. Lithium sulfur cells today, that number is somewhere more like 100 times, so a tenth as long as lithium ion batteries last. So that's what researchers are really trying to focus on, getting that number a little bit up. Because I know that batteries are your passion. I mean, you follow the, the news. Is there any possibility in the future of doing away with lithium too? There are alternatives that don't use lithium. I think there are batteries called sodium ion batteries that are being developed, might even make their way into some low-cost electric vehicles. A lot of the interesting work is going on in China with that chemistry right now. But lithium is really just a great material to use for batteries. So I think it'll be interesting to see, but it's really tough to get away yeah. from that particular material. Yeah, I get it. Okay, let's move on to some health news. And this one's very interesting. It's, it's that the FDA just approved the first treatment for severe frostbite. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I guess I didn't know that we didn't have a treatment for it. But yes, the FDA just approved a drug called Iliprost. It's an injection that can treat severe frostbite. Um, so this is the first treatment for that condition approved in the U.S. Basically, in severe frostbite, you know, your skin and, and the underlying tissue kind of freezes, which limits blood flow to the area. This drug is what's called a vasodilator, which means it opens up the blood vessels um, and can get blood flowing to the area. So it's not a new drug. It's just a new use for an, another drug. Yes, that is true. So this same drug has been used in the past as an inhaled medication to treat high blood pressure in the lungs. So it's in a different form and a different dose and, yeah, for a different purpose. And it has been tried out, I'm sure. So we know that it works. Yes. Um, this has actually been used in other countries for a while, but there was a, a clinical trial that showed that this drug kind of reduced the, the risk for amputation. Well, that's very good news then. There is news of a, 
a heart on a chip. Never more, as I <laughs> say. <laughs> yes, it is a little a little poesque. So researchers developed a, what's called a heart on a chip. So this is a small device that mimics the interactions of cells in a human heart. There are cells growing inside this device with tiny channels that move fluids around. And this is kind of one of a growing body of these sort of organ models that researchers want to use to help, you know, test drugs, better understand the organs in our body. It's really interesting. And yes, definitely sounds a little bit like science fiction. Yeah, because we've heard about lungs on a chip. As you say, no pun intended, the growing body of uses. For <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Researchers say that they're interested in taking these kind of either organoids or organ models and stringing them together, maybe to understand how drugs would impact, you know, different organs in the body. There's still a lot of work to do before these models can be used effectively, you know, getting the cells to kind of act in a way that they would act in the body, using materials that researchers are sure wouldn't affect the experiment results but it's really, really fascinating to follow. It is fascinating. And speaking of something fascinating, I heard about this. I didn't believe it, actually. Scientists found a mushroom growing out of a frog. Yes. <laughs> they just happened to be walking through the forest and found this or something like that? Yes. Really? I would highly recommend everybody go look at this picture. It's, it's adorable and also very confusing. So there was a group of friends exploring in India looking for reptiles and amphibians, and they found a bunch of these little frogs. They're called Rouse Intermediate Goldenback Frogs. They were in this roadside pond, and one of the frogs had what looks like a little tiny mushroom sprouting out of it. You know, they took pictures. They published a kind of a note in an academic journal. Experts are all very confused about what, yeah. this, what is going on here. I mean, we don't know how a mushroom ever ended up growing on a frog, right? No, there are so many questions, particularly because, you know, we think of like mushrooms as being kind of what we think about when we think about fungi, but there's always kind of the root-like structure called mycelium. So is there mycelium that was growing inside this frog that allowed the mushroom to pop out? Yeah. What was going on? We don't know because unfortunately this team didn't collect the frog. It wasn't, you know, dissected. They let it hop along. They never picked it up and took it with them. That's as astounding as the finding <laughs> of the frog is, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that this frog got to go live its life. But yeah, so experts are kind of going to have to keep their eyes out to understand more about, you know, what this relationship between frogs and fungus might look like. We don't really know. Let's wrap up this Valentine's Day week with a story about scientists tracking a population of gibbons by listening to them serenade each other. Yes, I love this story. Um, so like you said, scientists in Myanmar were eavesdropping on the love songs from these primates called Skywalker gibbons, which, yes, they are named after like that Skywalker. They were named by Star Wars fans. Um, so these primates, they wake up every morning and the couples, they sing to each other. And so researchers were able to set up all this acoustic monitoring equipment and identify 44 new groups of these gibbons in Myanmar, which is really exciting because these animals are, are on the endangered species list. And we actually have a clip. Let's, eve let's eavesdrop on their love songs. <gasps> yes. I, I guess if you're a gibbon, that is a, a sweetheart call. <laughs> yes, the height of romance. I love it. <laughs> and how did scientists use that to estimate the population? Yeah, so it was a combination of that to kind of help them 
figure out where to look. And then they were able to collect these chewed up plants and fruits to confirm with DNA testing um, that it was actually this particular kind of gibbon in the area, take photos. Um, so it was a, a kind of a, a multi-pronged effort to, to figure this out. Casey, always bringing good stuff for us. Thank you for taking time to be with us today and have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Happy to be here. Casey Crownhart, climate reporter at the MIT Technology Review based in New York.